Well, good afternoon, and welcome to, to Cato. Uh, this is the first uh, presentation uh, of our new Center for the Study of Science. And when I was given the go-ahead to start this, I said the first person I really want to get here is Richard Lindzen. And we were fortunate enough to find support for him. And Richard Lindzen is a distinguished senior fellow here uh, in the Center for the Study of Science. We, that's the highest title that we have at Cato, uh, and two of our distinguished senior fellows now deceased have won Nobel Prizes. Um, Dick uh, was, received his A.B. in Harvard in physics back in the Ice Age, uh, and then followed with his master's and Ph.D. in applied mathematics. Uh, he then went to the National Center for Atmospheric Research. That's kind of the mecca for atmospheric scientists, at least when we believed it was all pure and wonderful uh, in the 1960s. 68 to 72, he was hired as an associate professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, I ran into him when I was there. He doesn't remember me. I remember him. And he was promoted to full professor at UFC at the ripe old age of 32. Uh, was, was elected to the National Academy when the National Academy was much less politicized at the age of 37. The Burden Professor of Atmospheric Dynamics at Harvard for 11 years, followed by his appointment at the MIT as a Sloan Professor of uh, Atmospheric Science in the end. It was originally a Sloan Professor of Meteorology. He's seen it all, like a few of us have seen a lot. And he has a lot to say about the history of science, modern science, the incentive structure of science, through the prism of being an atmospheric scientist, but with general application to other areas of science. Uh, if his talk here today, right now, was anything like his noon presentation uh, on the Hill, you're in for a treat. Please welcome Richard S. Linson. Thank you, Michael. Um, I'm always reminded with such introductions of uh, an obvious remark that uh, talking about the weather is a sign of boredom. And I have the feeling that uh, global climate may be a sign of terminal boredom. I don't think this will be terribly exciting, nor will it in some ways be completely uh, new. There are some references here. I'm not going to... You have strange. Uh, okay. At any rate, you can have copies of these later, but almost everything I'm going to speak about uh, is in these papers. Uh, Dan Greenberg certainly, for many years, uh, tracked the ins and outs of science in this city. Uh, Zhores Medvedev uh, described another case where politics dominated science, and that was the case of Lysenko and agronomy in the Soviet Union. I had a paper, strange paper, and originally produced in 2008, came out in 2012, called Climate Science, Is It Designed to Answer Questions? And uh, that itself is an interesting history. There's also an early paper I had for regulation, Cato's magazine, called Global Warming, The Origin and Nature of the Alleged Scientific Consensus. 
Date on that is 1992, but it was really given in 1990, originally at Tel Aviv University. And uh, it's amazing how little has changed. Then there was another issue which involved politicization of science, and that was immigration in the early 20th century. And that somehow got locked into eugenics. And again, you had a case of the exploitation of science by politics. Uh, there had been heavy immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Many people in the US wanted to know how to stop it. They decided that, uh, of course, the reasons to stop it had nothing to do with this, but maybe science could help them out. And eugenics came to the rescue. They found someone in human genetics, minor figure, Lachlan, Harry Laughlin, who became Congress's expert in it. And he assured Congress that there was an epidemic of feeble-mindedness in America, and it was due to immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. And it played a significant role in rationalizing the Immigration Restriction Act of 1923. Um, there have recently been a number of people, Gary Kasparov, the chess master, Peter Thiel, Levchin, who are questioning whether there has been a slowdown in innovation and even in science itself, and we'll come to that. At any rate, these are things you can read if you want to go into more detail, but I'm going to mainly give a talk rather than a slideshow. As Michael mentioned, I mean, part of this is addressing science more generally than climate. For almost three centuries, science has had a glorious run. The power of the paradigm of dialectic opposition of theory and observations helped us gain a great deal of access to nature's secrets. And not only that, but revolutionized our world. It also gained for science the admiration and trust of the world. And therein lie a trap. Credibility and trust are commodities that are powerfully envied and sought by political leaders and movements of all sorts. It is not for nothing that Marxism was called scientific socialism. It is not an accident that atheists cling to neo-Darwinian evolution as a dogma. Unfortunately, when science becomes a source of authority, it loses much of its value as a mode of inquiry. The co-optation of climate science for political and ideological ends is by no means unique. I've already mentioned two other examples. But its remarkable success warrants careful study. And while enough books have been written to put Ecclesiastes to shame, much of the story remains to be explored and understood. The present lecture pretend, hardly pretends to achieve this. What I would like instead is to appeal to talented social scientists and historians to begin looking at various aspects of the issue. We'll come to more of that later. Though most people, I find, are under the impression that global warming is a recent issue, 
Anyone who's been studying the issue or observing it quickly realizes that it has many roots, extending from the elite obsession with Malthusian limits and the concomitant obsession with population to the nominal energy crises of the 70s. Now, when one gets back to the 60s and 70s, there's something that I'll come back to in a moment, but it's, it's worth remembering. Within science, there was a major change. And the change I'm referring to was the shift from the gratitude that characterized support of science between World War II, at least in America, and 65, the Vannevar Bush report, the, the feeling, you know, science did not have to defend itself. The atom bomb, penicillin, radar, all left the world convinced, and at least America convinced, science was worthwhile. There were 20 years that I consider a golden age for American science, not only the infusion of European scientists, but the generous support and remarkable freedom of that period uh, led to an efflorescence that I think is still remarkable. What I remember, even as a young person at that time, as a kid essentially for much of that period, was that you know at mealtime there was shop talk that slowly deteriorated. What happened, I think, was in the 60s with the Vietnam War and budget constraints, you had the first major cuts in scientific budgets since World War II, and suddenly there was the recognition that science was dispensable, and uh, the comparable realization that gratitude was not a stable source of support, that fear was better. We'll come back to that later. But you suddenly had all sorts of uh, groups figuring out how to make science relevant through fear rather than gratitude. For a long time, CO2 looked like a good candidate. It had certainly been proposed by someone called Calendar in 1939 to account for the temperature rise from about 1919 to 39. It had been hotly argued during the 50s in the atmospheric science community. There were even prominent people declaring CO2 cooled rather than warmed. But by the time the dust had settled, <coughs> it was understood that uh, CO2 warmed, but very modestly. Doubling of CO2 is good for a degree or so. This didn't seem to be enough to produce fear. There was then work by Suki Manabe and Weather, his colleague Weatherald, and this was at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, then in Washington, subsequently in Princeton, where he realized, and they realized, that if you made an assumption, an assumption which incidentally is not correct or justified, the assumption was if in a changing climate relative humidity remained a constant, then they found you could double the impact of CO2. And the situation was even better than that, so to speak. Um, 
The response equals the response without feedbacks over one minus the sum of the feedback factors. What they found was that their constant relative humidity led to a feedback factor of 0.5, plus 0.5. That's a positive feedback. So one minus 0.5 is 0.5, and you've doubled the effect. But the more significant effect with this equation is, what happens if you add another 0.5? What does the response go to? Infinity. So basically, once you get 0.5 in the door, you can add just a little and it skyrockets. That incidentally is why over this long period since 79, when the National Academy first looked at the sensitivity, the answer has continued to remain one and a half to four and a half degrees. Okay, at any rate, what I'm getting to though is something other than that, but closely related. In 79, two people, Sherwood Idso and Reginald Newell, Sherwood Idso was in Arizona, Department of Agriculture, and Reggie Newell was at MIT, professor, wrote papers criticizing Manabe and Weatherald and arguing that they had not taken proper account of evaporation. Okay. I happen to think that Reggie and Itso were on to something, but they were wrong, but it didn't matter. That's science. They published papers in Nature and Science. And there was controversy and arguments. I thought it ended there, but someone at a meeting of the National Re Academy's Climate Research Board, an observer had taken notes of a meeting in 1980. And at this meeting, the head of the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, Joseph Smagorinsky, and the head of the National Center for Atmospheric Research, Walter R. Roberts, put forward a motion to have the Academy formally and publicly censure Craig Itzo, not Craig Itzo, Sherwood Itzo, for criticizing Manabe and Weatherald. The reason one never heard of it is there was another member of the committee, Sylvan Vitva, very prudent hydrologist from Michigan, who made the point that academy committees don't do this kind of thing. Nevertheless, the attempt already indicated that within the atmospheric science community, it was understood that CO2 could be their ticket to the future, but only if you could amplify it adequately. At the same time, you had something going on in the environmental movement. It had, has seen great success since the first Earth Day. But I think there was a growing realization that in clean air and clean water did not lie the assurance of its eternal life. People could tell if the water had gotten cleaner. They could tell if the air was cleaner. Uh, you needed something that they could not assess, go on forever. And they tried various things. 
I like to point out that in many ways they took the model from medicine. I mean, the older of us remember going to doctors and, you know, because we felt bad. And we, you know, if the doc, whatever happened, made us feel better, well, we were happy with that. But that was dangerous for the doctor. I mean, depended on measurable success in certain sense. Uh, today, you go for your annual checkup, the blood test is taken, you are told if you feel well or not, and another test is taken to see if you feel better or not. You're out of the loop. And this is what, in a sense, could be provided by things like global cooling, ozone depletion, global warming. Finally, with ozone as a lead-up, uh, global warming has become the mode for the environmental movement to achieve its, its longevity. I remember Richard Benedict, the American State Department negotiator at the Montreal Convention, where the Montreal Protocol was signed. On his way back from Montreal, he stopped at MIT, gave a talk. He was extremely pleased with their success. But he added a remark that was quite interesting. I mean, given the early day, he said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till we get to carbon. So it was a lead-in. Um, you know, it's true that the meteorological and oceanographic and other communities were eager participants in this, but there was a, an infiltration that I think gets too little attention. Now, I should mention at the time that climate became an issue, no one at MIT actually called themselves a climate scientist. We're all meteorologists, oceanographers, marine geochemists. Uh, only as funding for climate came in did we all become climate scientists. At any rate, the infiltration I'm mentioning was curious, but it, it gives you a handle on the dates and what's going on. For instance, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, when I was working there, there was an administrative assistant director called John Firor. Now, at the time I was there, which is the 60s and the early 70s, uh, John never pretended to have any scientific qualifications for meteorology or oceanography. What had happened is the National Center for Atmospheric Research involved melding of a new center with something called the High Altitude Observatory, which was basically a solar observatory. John came from that. He had no background in meteorology. And he was administrator, basically held, holding the, taking care of the administrative end of things at uh, NCAR. He died some five, six years ago. Maybe more. No, about that. And it's interesting to see his obituary. From 1975 to 1980, well, hardly anyone at NCAR realized this, he was board chairman of environmental defense. Um, and indeed, uh, as the global warming issue started, he was uh, popular, you know, circulating as an expert on climate. Um, same thing happened, actually, at the UK Met Office. Uh, they have a board, and its chairman, uh, until recently, 
was also the chief executive of the World Wildlife Fund, a fellow named Napier. Uh, in Germany, you have Bill Hare, who was a lawyer and the campaign director for Greenpeace, posing as uh, the scientific representative of the Potsdam Institute. And of course, here you have the protege of Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren, who permeates a great deal of science, from executive director of Pugwash, the head of the Woods Hole Research Center, which is not the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, but rather an environmental advocacy group, to president at one time of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, to the board of the MacArthur Foundation, which gives out the MacArthur Genius Awards, to the Clinton Gore spokesman on climate, to the presidential science advisor right now, not to mention a professorship at Harvard's Kennedy School. I should emphasize that, not physics department. In Germany, you have a similar role being played by a man called John Schellenhuber. Uh, these all, and their timing and behavior, I think, reveal a fairly concentrated effort to take over a field, and an effort that began, as we see, with Smagorinsky and Orr Roberts, already in the 1970s, 60s. Um, at the National Academy of Sciences, there was a rump group that established, a, you know, essentially an environmental enthusiast group. They established a temporary nominating group for the global environment. You have to understand a little bit about the ball game at the National Academy to understand what this is. I mean, the National Academy is an honorific association, and it's divided into disciplinary sections uh, whose only job really is to nominate and elect new members. Uh, it's an honorific thing. To elect a member the member needs at least 80% support within any given section, enthusiastic support. And anyone elected can join any section. So this temporary nominating group essentially provided an end run around this selection process to elect members who were environmental enthusiasts through a back door, and then they could join sections and exert a veto on subsequent elections. A heavy degree of control. It was through this temporary nominating group that Holdren, Schellenhuber, Jim Hansen, Steve Schneider, and others were elected. Schellenhuber, I should mention, now serves on the board of the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and with one or two colleagues, they are the gatekeepers against publications that question global warming alarm. A particularly interesting example of infiltration is the par participation of environmental NGOs in the activities of the EPA. Now, Senator Vitter is, is you know, pointing out the in incestuous relation between uh, suing the EPA and the uh, EPA supporting the, the people suing it. But there is a kind of simpler relation that exists with the notion of a gate uh, stakeholder 
uh, almost all review panels for EPA support include uh, representatives of the environmental movement. And one of these apparently was Michael Oppenheimer, a name some of you may be familiar with. He was uh, an astrochemist who found a job with the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, his contributions to climate science are next to zero, although there are a lot of papers that say climate. They're almost all policy or such things. He became the Barbara Streisand Distinguished Scientist at EPA and is now a professor at Princeton. But at any rate, he was on the review panel at EPA, apparently. I say apparently, he said he might have been. Um, which bailed out his friend, James Hansen. Now, Jim Hansen uh, is one of the prominent drumbeaters for global warming hysteria. He is, was the, he just resigned, he was the director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. You have to understand what GIS is. GIS is a satellite lab of Goddard Space Flight Center here in Greenbelt. And it was created for its first director, Robert Jastrow. When Robert Jastrow retired, resigned, uh, Goddard Space Flight Center was intent on bringing GIS back to Greenbelt. There's no longer a reason to have a satellite. And the vast majority of the people at GIS returned to Greenbelt. But there were a handful of people who wanted to stay in New York, and uh, a battle ensued. In this battle, uh, Goddard Space Flight Center used its obvious tool. It cut off their funding. And uh, as far as I can tell, and this was the late 70s, early 80s, uh, EPA came to the rescue and bailed them out as long as they would do climate research instead of space science. The rest, so to speak, is history. Um, not surprisingly, in such a politicized environment, science uh, becomes profoundly distorted. Anything that did not fit the paradigm of CO2-controlled clim climate was suppressed. Everyone here is familiar, I think, with things like the hockey stick, which purported to eliminate the medieval warm period. But there were more subtle examples that are much less known. Um, for example, uh, the first reconstructions of the last glacial maximum 18,000 years ago had uh, no cooling in the tropics. The cooling was just at higher latitudes. Um, as has been happening in recent decades, but not before, the first attempt to explain any climate event is to change CO2. Uh, but reducing CO2 did very little, and it did it at all latitudes, including the tropics. There was then a profoundly uh, intense effort to get rid of uh, the stationary tropics and make them cool. And, you know, we'll come back to that. I mean, it may not necessarily be wrong, 
There was a similar thing with the Eocene 50 million years ago. During the Eocene, uh, the first reconstructions had vastly reduced equator to pole temperature difference and uh, cooling at the equator. Let me just, uh, uh, this is the picture. Uh, essentially, the dashed line is today. And the solid line was their attempt to reconstruct what was going on 50 million years ago. The attempt to simulate it, as again was Barron in Washington, crank up the CO2. And what happens when you do that is you got warming everywhere, but you didn't change the equator to pole temperature difference. And so. You had an immense effort in this field to get rid of the cooling at the equator and uh, at least to get it to warm at all latitudes. Um, so I think at this point, most people agree it didn't actually warm, but it may not have cooled the equator. But there is a point to take away from this. And that point is that you cannot use the paradigm of greenhouse warming to actually explain past climate. And that is true for a variety of things. It isn't a very successful paradigm, even forgetting its failures today, but for the past. So here you have a, a theory of climate, it's very retrogressive. People had much better ideas in the 30s, and it's failing. Um, you have perhaps the strangest one is the early faint sun. And this is something that you know gets very little attention, but it, it's a pet hobby of mine. Um, this is going back a little further, two and a half billion years ago. And it's a paradox that was first pointed out by Carl Sagan. It's a very interesting one. Uh, you have a pretty good model for the sun, standard model for the sun, people like John Bacall and so on. What it shows is, you know, fusion evolves in such a way that the sun or solar type stars brighten with time. And uh, this is because the burning glare is rising, getting closer to the outside. Um, two and a half billion years ago, the estimate is the solar output was 20 to 30% less than at present. Now, numbers are assiduously avoided in global warming. So very few people seem to realize that doubling carbon dioxide only changes the radiation budget on the order of 2%. Here we're talking 20 to 30%. With 2%, we're talking about tipping points, and the end of the planet, and so on. What did 20 to 30% do the other direction? It's thought, at the very least, given the climate theories of global cooling, it would at least freeze the ocean. 
but the geological evidence is that not only were the oceans unfrozen, but the temperatures were pretty much what they are today. And so, you know, what do you do about that? Well, as I say, one of the strangest things I've seen is that people in the solar physics community attempted to overthrow the standard model to deny that it was working. Um, turns out, if you look carefully at what they did, it didn't really solve the problem of the early faint sun. And most solar physicists, perhaps all by now, dismiss this attempt. But it's interesting because I don't think these people were dishonest. But I think when you know there is a political need for an answer, uh, people often try to meet that need, even if I think without much consciousness. Um, as I say, the failure of the greenhouse is it doesn't account for the past. Instead, we're told to focus on minuscule changes in global mean temperature anomalies. Again, without being told they're minuscule. Um, you have, I mean, here, you know, situation. I mean, you have this change of a few tenths of a degree. It's supposed to portend the end of civilization. What it reminds me more of than anything is uh, the Dutch Republic. A strange sort of analogy, but... During the period of the Dutch Republic, 17th century, Holland was a world powerhouse, successful beyond measure, rich beyond measure. But as a Calvinist country, it was beset with guilt. And so every time there was a beaching of a whale on the beach of Holland, there was a national day of fasting to repent for their sins. Uh, there's something of a similar way we're treating small changes in temperature as sort of manifestations of our guilt for prosperity, for industrialization. At any rate, when the issue was rolled out in public in 1988, immediately Newsweek declared that all scientists agreed that there was a consensus that uh, what we were seeing was something very bad and the earth would fry. Both, I think, the consensus and the ignoring the minuscule nature of the warming are part of a shell game. As far as the minuscule, means, I, I show this thing here, this slide. Uh, a little bit. Some projector short. <coughs> if you look at this, it's in the Boston Globe. <coughs> they have this every day. What it shows on the horizontal axis is 30 days, roughly. At the end is the day. Um, you have three bars for each day. The blue bar is the high and low for the day. The darker gray is the 
climatological average high and low for the day. The light bars tell you the distance between the record high and low for the day. The scale in Fahrenheit is shown here. So we're around 50 degrees or 40 something in the middle. And the range is pretty large record. I mean, it's over 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you see, you know, a change uh, because it's April, you're transitioning from winter to uh, summer. Uh, the dates for the record highs and lows are all over the place. And then you see in the middle a red line. What is this red line? The thickness of the red line represents the range of global mean temperature anomaly over the past century. Anytime anyone tells you they feel the Earth is warming, this is telling you that's impossible. You don't feel this change amidst all the other changes going on. What about consensus? And this is thrown around all the time. You know, 97%, uh, 150% of all scientists agree, uh, who knows what. The methodology is always kind of crazy. And people can dissect the methodology and say, you know, what it consensus are you talking about? The reason I think that's part of a shell game is the following. There really is a consensus. Now, what is the consensus? I think most people I know working on climate, regardless of their position on warming, would agree there's been an irregular and small compared to normal regional variability net warming since about 1850. Climate change does exist. It has occurred over the Earth's entire existence. Added greenhouse gases should have had some impact, though small, unless the climate system acts so as to greatly amplify the effect. This is certainly true over the past 60 years, but there should have been little impact before then, for reasons I can explain. Uh, greenhouse gases have increased over the past 200 years or so. And their greenhouse impact, I should mention, you know, you always hear climate sensitivity is defined as the response to a doubling of CO2. And we're told that CO2 is now 35% more than it was uh, in the 19th century. There are other greenhouse gases, methane, nitrous oxide, prions. When you add them all up in the IPCC, you're already at 80% of the radiative forcing of a doubling of CO2. So in if you're worried about a doubling of CO2, we're there. Now, the interesting thing about this consensus that is missed is that it doesn't, uh, it's entirely consistent with there being no problem. And nothing even in the IPCC Working Group 1 assessment contradicts this. Now, it's strange. Where do we stand on that? I mean, uh, well, it's clear that 
whenever you attach to this catastrophism, <coughs> that's the introduction of politics. Even the IPCC claim that they are very certain that uh, you know most of the warming since 1950 is due to man. They're simply saying that uh, you know most of a very small warming may be due to man, and that's completely consistent with there's not a big problem. Indeed, to make the models match the observations, for any model with a sensitivity over about 1.3 <coughs> degrees for a doubling of CO2, you have to subtract from the warming aerosol cooling, <coughs> bring it into line with the observations. and This is a fudge factor. And indeed, one of the things that's making the pause quote, in warming over the last 17 years or so, feature prominently and almost never mentioned, is the aerosol community is beginning to get upset with the <coughs> wide range of uncertainty needed in aerosols to provide enough of a fudge factor, meaning to say, we know it better than that, and it's not as big as you think. And so that is leaving all sorts of peculiar explanations around. Uh, you know, as usual, the real issue is not based on yes or no. Do you believe in climate change? Is it warming? Is it cooling? It's always based on how much. And also, and this is equally important, how relevant. When you start saying that hurricanes, or sea level rise, and so on. However, whatever you think about the data, are signs of X, Y, and Z. Well, they depend on so many factors, including tectonics and so on, that uh, you could reasonably ask, what model shows these are definitive signs of anything? And you find the models are all over the place with that as well as anything else. Well. This brings me to the last, and perhaps in some ways the most important part of my talk. Um, how did we get to this point where the science ceased to be interested in the fascinating question of accounting for the remarkable history of the Earth's climate, for an understanding of how climate actually works, and instead devoted itself to supporting a component of political correctness? Perhaps one should take a broader view of what's going on. And here, the question arises, and one being looked at by various people, how is science really faring? Has anything happened that, in fact, rendered things like climate sense science vulnerable to corruption? Um, with respect to corruption, I won't even bother dwelling on the specifics. Climate Gate made clear that uh, you had the suppression of different views, the intimidation of editors, the falsification of data. Uh, despite claims that uh, the perpetrators have been exonerated 
The emails are available for anyone to look at. They will speak for themselves. My personal feeling is that the writers of the emails were more the beneficiaries of the ultimate corruption and defending their status that arose from the corruption rather than the sources of it. But that's a separate issue. Um, let's go back to the science itself. I would say from 1820 until 1965 was for science a golden age. Theory, empirical testing, and exploration, and the applications of this were all proceeding apace. There is a growing feeling, however, that progress may have stalled. One of the things that really needs study is whether that is in fact true. It's difficult to assign any slowing down to a particular cause. And, you know, although, for instance, in theoretical physics, we still have the standard model from 1960, although molecular biology is still working with the the work of 1960, roughly, up helix 50s. There may be reasons for that. Maybe the problems are hard or that the solution was correct and there was nothing much else to do. Still, there is a feeling that something has changed. And what I would propose is what has changed are things that do indicate the incentive structure of science and should have had a detrimental effect. And I think what has to be looked at is if this is actually playing out. One of the things I've already mentioned is the replacement of gratitude with fear. There is little question. I mean, the incentive structure is radically different. Gratitude is essentially demanding more contributions. This requires unique talents. Fear calls for the perpetuation of fear. This is less demanding of talent. Uh, fear, on the whole, seems more effective than gratitude. And there has been immense growth in government support of science. But this, too, has tilted the incentive structure. Now, we can go into details of this. I mean, the role of Sputnik in expanding it, and setting an example for the importance of fear and so on, were probably not unimportant. Um, there was, of course, as I mentioned, the cutbacks in science during Vietnam and so <clears> on. <throat> but you began to see with Nixon and so on the... the the rhetoric of science was, you know, the Cold War, the war on cancer, catching up with the Russians. And uh, I think it left science sort of hooked on fear. And th this essentially, with the end of the Cold War, led to an uh, intensive search, more broadly, for other sources of fear to maintain the support with the disappearance of one of the major aspects. Now, there were also other incentives change, changes. Uh, the growth, due to a variety of things, the uh, 
spurring of science as a result of Sputnik, baby boom, led to vastly greater bureaucracy, more regulations, and so on. At MIT, for example, the number of faculty is not terribly different from 1960. Number of students is not terribly different. We're talking about 20, 30 percent. Number of administrators is almost a factor of 10 more. Uh, this has had a number of important consequences. Um, the growth of administration at the university and in research centers has led to an immense emphasis on grant overhead. I don't know if all of you, I suppose all of you are familiar with this. You know, if you're applying for $100,000, you have to tag on $60,000 for the overhead at the university. This is the salary for the administration. It's all sorts of things going on. But as the administration has grown, it's a more important constituent of any university. And that has some surprising uh, impact. First of all, uh, you know, it makes grants much more important. Right? When, you, when I mentioned as a young person, you went to lunch, you talked shop. Today you talk about grants, where funds are available. But some of the surprising results are the de-emphasis of theory. Theory, you know, requires minimal expenses. Experiments, observations require major expenses and have major overhead. So you have this peculiar imbalance arising in science. The growth of the funding is accompanied by the growth of the funding agencies. And uh, this has led to a very significant uh, increase in their importance in directing science and in turf battles. I mean, when I first got money from NASA, for instance, uh, headquarters was of no importance. They were just shuffling the paper for stuff done by the laboratories. But today, and for many years, Headquarters calls the shots. At NSF, when I started, there was one program officer for meteorology who was on the permanent staff, and there were two rotators. Um, they didn't call the shots. They were there to facilitate science. But with the growth, you had a much greater permanent staff. Each had its turf to defend. And... This, in a subtle way, changed the whole scientific paradigm. Uh, it changed it from the one where you had the dialectic opposition of theory and observation. And remember, this is a bit different in observational sciences and in experimental sciences. But now you had this replaced by simulation and program. Uh, with programs like, and there's one Toga Core to look at the tropical Pacific. Uh, it's not to test a theory. It's not to find anything new. It's just studying things. And instead of theory, you run a computer model and see if you can adjust it to simulate what you saw. Now, the, the difference, as I mentioned, is that the traditional scientific paradigm was convergent. That is to say, each 
contradiction that you resolved improved things. The current paradigm is not convergent, nor is it designed to be. Now, other things have changed as well. Physics and math no longer have the prestige they once had, and undoubtedly quality may have suffered. Um, as with fear, all the above should lead to the perpetuation rather than problem solving. And I would suggest that one of the things Cato could do, and with that I'll end my talk, is study this. Is this, in fact, the consequence of what are self-evidently changes, major changes in the incentive structure? And I think if one can study this, one either can determine what is wrong with science and in the process what has made climate science itself so vulnerable, or maybe we will discover that science has robustness, which is not obvious in this picture. At any rate, that's, I think, a suitable task for the future. Thank you. Uh, we'll take some questions. I'm going to have the moderator's privilege of asking you the first one. Uh, what you are saying is that the academy is dependent upon um, large amounts of federal research funding, where the overhead is dispersed to departments that can't generate that funding, and to administrators, which means the university has become increasingly essentially a welfare client uh, of the federal government. Um, you know, we, people make glib statements about the roots of political correctness in the academy, but I've never heard anyone, I think, lay out what you just did, which is an argument that the political correctness may be a result of the incentives to, of the academy itself, meaning to be dependent upon the federal government as a requirement. I mean, that's more a statement than a question. Well, do you think that's true? Uh, in part, it obviously is true. Um, it is more true, and this is something I haven't dealt with, with professional societies. Um, professional societies, the American Physical Society, American Chemical Society, American Meteorological Society, all these things, used to be spread through the whole country. You know, AMS had its offices in Boston, Philadelphia, and so on. Today, they're all focused on Washington. They are no longer facilitators of communication. They are lobbyists for the interests of their subject. And as such, they are ever more sensitive to the wishes of Washington. So in that sense, uh, professions are increasingly welfare clients of a certain sort. <coughs> Universities also cannot ignore these things. I agree with that. The question is, how far has it gone? I don't know. We'd like to know the answer. Thank you. Uh, my name is Terry Michael. I run a program called The Politics and Journalism Semester, teaching uh, science ignorant 
future political reporters about politics. First of all, Dr. Lindzen, if we were uh, any place but the high auditorium, you'd be a denialist, like a Holocaust denialist, because that's how we shut down debate. <laughs> and if a mainstream reporter were covering your talk, I'll bet you by the third or fourth graph, there'd be a reference to David Vitter as another way to discredit you because he's a Republican senator. At the beginning of each semester, I tell my science ignorant students who are social science majors, which is an oxymoron held over from the progressive era. You, if you were like me 40 years ago, did everything you could do to avoid a chemistry course, a physics course, or a biology course. I only had to take chemistry. Uh, I was on the dean's list every semester, but got a D in chemistry. We hated it, and therefore we're ignorant. We would not for a moment not question a George Bush for an elective war or the Wall Street bankers for a meltdown, but we know so little about science, we are victims of anybody with uh, a science degree after their name. And I think I then tell them they have to read Eisenhower's farewell address, military-industrial complex, but I'll just read one phrase from it. Um, Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. So then I finally say, getting to my question, you have to learn enough about science to assess the truth claims are just going to be victims. How are we going to explain this to the general public when we have no interpreters who know anything about science. You could say, well, okay, put an expert in there, but look at today's Washington Post. Everybody between the womb and uh, death has to take statins now, according to the American Heart Association. Little, little heart thing on your Cheerios. Not a paragraph in that story about the conflict of interest, the economic conflict of interest. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to get past um, this... Public ignorance, which means political ignorance. Let me say, first of all, that, you know, in pointing to the article on statements, it's a good example. I mean, Pat showed it to me today. Um, the article <clears throat> didn't exactly say what you said. The headline said that. The article was saying that they now realize sometimes you don't use it. And indeed, uh, if you read carefully, it sounded as though it would actually lead to reduced usage. Now specified, there are only certain cases. So there's always a misrepresentation involved in that, and that's where vested interests lie. But there's another issue which I think you may be shortchanging, and that is who the public is. Um, the public for most of us who are in academia, is not our colleagues. The public is not think tanks. The public is not PhDs. The public in general seems to be much more sensible than these people. The public, despite the media, does not buy into this by every poll. If they do, it is tempered by economic realism. Okay, I accept this is dangerous. How much will you spend? Ten cents. Um, so the question then is, who is buying it? 
And it is, I think, very much what uh, is euphemistically referred to as the educated elite uh, who feel, well, they do until elections. And then sometimes there are surprises. But, you know, I was struck by this, and I've mentioned it several times today. I think it was Annenberg that did a survey in Egypt of the degree to which people believed anti-Semitic canards. And what they found was the belief in things like, you know, killing non-Jewish children to make unleavened bread, things like this, really crazy stuff. The belief increased with the degree of education. Um, you have to wonder a little bit, what is education? Uh, that's a serious issue because it, it's obviously valuable in one sense. But if you ask yourself, what defines a good student? And in many cases, in certain fields certainly, it is defined by his ability to please his or her professor which means that except maybe in the hard sciences or mathematics, what you've developed is a cadre of people whose talent consists in rationalizing anything. And thus we're forced for ordinary people who don't have this pretense to rely on their common sense because we've drilled it out of many of the rest. <laughs> on the whole, I'm fairly optimistic. I mean, I find in the UK here, popular support for uh, treating global warming as a catastrophe has developed a much more nuanced quality than it has among the educated. I think Julia Gillard would agree with you in <laughs> Australia. She's no longer prime minister. Hi. Uh, my name is Claudia Farris. I am a PhD candidate, sorry. Um, we all at, have suffered yeah, from that. <laughs> at George Mason University in public policy, but my work is in complexity science. I'm surprised. Um, I, I agree with very little of what you said, but the one thing you said that I do agree with is uh, you gave a, an important role to social scientists um, in, in evolving the position of science. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that you... Um, say that science is seemingly on the decline, especially since you're a physicist. I'm sorry. I'm surprised that you're saying that there's a decline in the prestige and position of science, especially as a, well. I didn't say that. Right, you didn't. I'm paraphrasing. No. But that's what I concluded based on what you said. No, I'm saying that, that there are things that are changing the incentive structure, and there are questions arising as to the rate of progress whether that has, in fact, actually increased despite the larger number of papers, and much larger funding, uh, or whether there has been stagnation. I think that's important to determine. I'm not saying it's there. I stand corrected. Okay. Given that you are a physicist and an applied mathematician, though I have a question relating to the role of social science in the direction of the evolution of science in general, it has to do with the increase in computational analyses all over the place. Um, and and the, 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 the change in my attitude anyway toward mathematics that results from the success of the research on the, on the um, 
on the uh, on the uh, Higgs boson, right? So we have now multidimensionality. Um, oh wait, 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 wait! But the Higgs boson, and there are people here who might give a better. We're dealing with a paper, and a series of papers, different people. You know what the dates of those papers is? We're dealing with an experiment that demonstrated the experiment that is today. Yes. But the underlying theory they're testing, what is that from? Um, it's the general theory. It's when, a, when is it from? Can oh, I don't know. It's back in the 60s. I mean, that's... About 1960s. Yeah, right. It's, it's an old theory. No, and no, they, need, they the had a piece of it. Model. We just have gotten to the point where we have enough hardware to begin testing. it. Right. Yeah. Point taken. But I'm, I'm, what I'm looking at is, is the is the, the fact that the social sciences have been for generations dealing with multidimensionality, right? And um, I'm wondering if you, as an applied mathematician, think that there's any future in focusing on multidimensionality as such in, um, in expanding the, 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 how shall I say, the power of science. And that the social scientists, I believe, are positioned you need to let Dick answer your question, please. Okay. I, I think only with the greatest of caution. And that I say as an applied mathematician. Because uh, there are numerous examples, including one which I use when I teach, where you take a problem where you have a simple solution with limited number of variables. And then you add extra points of realism. And as you add them, the answer gets worse and worse and worse. Until finally you add enough of them where it settles back to the solution you got with the minimum degree of sophistication. So there is, and here one has to be very careful with the social sciences because even physical scientists make this mistake. When you have complicated multivariable systems, there is absolutely no assurance that adding degree by degree by degree of variability, you will get closer to the right answer. And mathematicians begin to understand why. I hope social scientists would also have that. Because there are many things. One example, for instance, like with chaos, that is often a property of having too few degrees of freedom. When you increase them, it disappears. So, you know, a person could get infatuated with chaos, they add a few degrees of freedom, and not realize it'll disappear when they go further. They are, sure. Even when they're real. We need to move on to another yeah. question, please. Uh, back there. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm from uh, France, uh, and uh, I'm doing the following work. I'll give you two examples in Scandinavia in particular. Uh, we put together the best possible high-definition content about science. High what? High-definition content about science. And the local community, whether in capital city or rural area, we had a walk in science. 
in knowledge, okay? And the results were very impactful. The interest in science, including mathematics and physics, increased in, with a factor which nobody expected. My question increased is the point. with respect to what? To have such an interest in science, in specifically in mathematics and physics, from everyone, whether in rural area or urban area okay. in Scandinavia. Okay? okay. So this was, uh, we conducted about four experiments in depth. My question is the following. Uh, first of all, I will, I will be provocative. I regret that you emphasize too much as case study climate uh, change because it's politically loaded. My question is the following. Uh, do you think that due to this massification of everything, internet, access for everyone, how would you solve the question to help everyone everywhere have access to content and services to enhance the motivation, inspiration for a broader range of public for science in particular? One has to, I think, deconstruct your aims a little bit. You know, in the dissemination of scientific knowledge, one has a number of aims. One of them might be to entrain young people into the activity. Another might be to garner support for science in the public at large. These are very different. For instance, I would argue that science museums, frequently, not always, are anti-scientific. They treat science as a body of information rather than a mode of inquiry. You have many kids who learn many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. They don't know geometry. So one has to be careful. Personally, as a research scientist, I would like to promote the curiosity that motivates inquiry, real science. I'm not sure how to do that anymore. Uh, you certainly have to leave things open for the student to play with. One of the most disturbing experiences I had in this connection was with uh, some nieces and nephews. There's a thing that all of us of a certain age realize, that one of our experiences in childhood was taking things apart and seeing how they work. Mechanism. Clocks were ideal for this, a mechanical clock an alarm clock, you take it apart, you see the springs, you see the escape, you see the... Wonderful. You know, sometimes you might even be able to put it back together again. Uh, if you were interested in electronics, you had the vacuum tube, you could see the filament burning the electrons off the cathode, the grid, in the everything was mechanistic and, and available, and you could think about it. Um, so what I did was uh, realize today with your electronic watch or anything uh, or your piece of electronics, all you do is see a board and printed circuit board and integrated circuits. Uh, 
You don't see anything doing anything. Miraculous, but it's not inspiring in the same sense, and it doesn't cause you to think the same way. So he bought at a flea market a whole bunch of alarm clocks and a set of cheap tools to take them apart, gave them to these kids, and they thought, well, that's very nice. And they had absolutely no interest, whatever, in opening it up and seeing how it worked. And so I think the main task in terms of education is how do you rekindle in a modern nanotechnological world a curiosity as to mechanism? And I think that's a, it's an important educational problem. I don't have the answer to it. John? Thank you. John Samples, Cato Institute. Uh, Dr. Lindzen, you made the case about the dangers of the politicization of scientific funding. I wonder uh, what, what your thoughts are on alternatives to the system we have. For example, a much more private system, and if so, how would that work? Or if you believe that science research, basic science, is a public good, uh, what kind of reforms might we have or might we look to in public funding? Um, yeah. Um, I think there are a couple of things to note in this. There are fields of science which have varied sources of funding. Medical technology is one of them. Bob Langer at MIT is probably the, has the largest, most prolific group in medical technology, and his support is all over the map. So in these areas, uh, there is compensation for pressure. There are always alternatives. Track record is valued. So things are okay. Um, in France, what I've noticed is that, for instance, well, a separate issue, let's say healthcare, it's state-funded, but with the aim of minimizing bureaucracy. And that's a helpful notion. That is to say, the government might be intrusive. Uh, you might not have a ready replacement in some fields, like pure math and so on. You may have some wealthy person who wished to endow something, uh, a Jim Simon or something, who does. But uh, you could keep in mind that you want to make it less intrusive. Uh, this happened automatically after World War II when the funding agencies were too small to be intrusive. And in fact, they were dependent on people accepting their money for their existence. So, you know, there was a nice relationship in a way. I, I think if it's possible, reestablishing those relations might be simpler than simply asking for something to replace the government. We, we don't have too much available in that. Uh, moreover, what I have found is in the limited cases where industry, for instance, is supporting research, they have even less idea of how to do it than the government. So it's not as though it's an automatic thing that it can do. It's a little bit like Bill Gates, you know, trying to be a humanitarian. I think with the best will in the world, there's a learning curve to it. One more. Oh, sorry. I'll give you, we'll get two more. Okay. 
Hi, uh, my name is Robert O'Hare. I'm the news director for A Voice for Men. And I, I wanted to talk about uh, the social sciences. <clears throat> There's um, it's, it's pretty clear that the social sciences in academia have been um, really, really beset with tremendous pressure by certain social ideologies, the overriding one being postmodernism. Uh, postmodernism seems to be really incompatible with science where, you know, you hear things like the truth is relevant, uh, just as an example. Um, and you challenge the social sciences to try to come up with an answer to this. How confident are you that they're going to be able to do that? And if, <laughs> if, if it does happen, how would you, how would you, how do you see that? Happening? Okay. Let's put it this way. The social sciences include a variety of sits. Um, I would include economics as a social science. Uh, in my experience, which is limited, MIT, Harvard, so on, Chicago, economics has actually been pretty good at spreading ideology and, and having a certain measure of diversity. This is different from other fields like uh, sociology and so on. Um, and that's what I had in mind. I was reminded, I mean, years ago when I, I worried about fear replacing gratitude, I discussed it with Julian Simon, some of you might know from the Fed. And he was, uh, he was very negative about it. I mean, and I sort of understood his point. He said, you know, I was suggesting something, but I wasn't presenting data. There's a need to take this data, whether it can be trusted or not, you know, is often, is always the case with any data, but that there should be institutions that begin figuring out even simple things. What is a metric for scientific productivity? And it's certainly not the number of papers. Um, would it be the uh, citation index? I would suggest it would be the citation index for a paper 10 years after it's written, 15 years. One could play with it at the heart of any scientific activity, and I try to get this through to students, and it gets harder and harder, is the concept of fooling around. You don't know what you're doing, but just fool around. Play with it, see where it goes, what happens. That's absolutely essential in this, and since very few scientists would actually do it, physical scientists, for instance, uh, it may have to come from outside, it may come from econometricians or others who might be interested in that. Once there is a serious effort in that part, it's true, academia might not be the most comfortable place. For instance, there's a field called science studies that has been completely overtaken by postmodernism. But it doesn't mean there shouldn't be such a field. And, you know, one has to find an environment where people who pursue it correctly can survive. And here, think tanks may play a serious role. That's a, that's a great answer, Dick. Your audience is probably split one-third, one-third, one-third between scientists, economists, and uh, 
political science types, and unlike this speaker, you seem to be friendly to all. Uh, <laughs> one last question way back here. I'm sure I can't hear too well. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure I understand. I wrote this note, and it was during the time you're talking about the... You, you are, and you are I, with... My name is Frank Lennox. I'm at Meridian International Center here okay, in Washington. Sure. And you were talking about the temperature divergence between the, the latitudes. But I wrote this note during that time. I said, are you saying, is he saying that science is being done for parochial reasons and not for real science? Are scientists distorting data, the results oh, to meet an end? Let me, let me speak to that a little bit. There is something, it's well known, called confirmation bias. So for instance, when temperature distributions didn't agree with a certain specific modeling approach. One of the tendencies, and there are many, many examples in climate science, and there are in other sciences too, uh, has been to bring the data into agreement with the model. Now, that isn't cheating. It sounds like it is. But you have to understand the nature of data in a field like paleoclimate. Huge error bars, subjective analysis, sometimes very clever. But it's not like weighing, measuring weight with a balance. So there's always a little room and sometimes a lot of wiggle room. But the danger is confirmation bias. If all your adjustments are always in one direction, that's suspicious. And there's plenty of reason to be suspicious. Now, there were also studies done in perfectly innocent fields where you're measuring something like the conductivity of copper and where uh, the first measurement is pretty right and then a distinguished person makes a measurement that's far away from it. And then it takes 50 years for people to have the courage to come back to the correct answer. So that's always acting. And what I'm saying here is the fact that the adjustments are always in one direction is very suspicious. Thank you, Nick. Uh, 